Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a Virginia state election could put the Biden presidency in jeopardy. How? Well, Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent, joins us to talk about that. The Ontario government will not include COVID-19 on the list of mandatory immunizations for students. We'll get some reaction from experts about whether this is a good or bad decision. And Emma McIntosh, environment reporter for the Narwhal, has more on what's happening with the Bradford Bypass Highway project from the Ford government. And the news might be surprising to you. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. President Joe Biden is uh, in Glasgow, of course, for the uh, the COP26 uh, policy. Uh, but he's not just talking about environmental issues. He's got some huge economic issues going on, one of them being supply chain. And although that's not a uniquely American problem, it's certainly having a major impact on the U.S. economy and ours and so many others. And a lot of countries are looking... Uh, to the president and to the United States for some solutions, including, by the way, some of the uh, Republicans in in the Congress suggesting that uh, this is all Biden's fault and he better fix it. Reggie Cicchini is with us. Reggie, of course, is Washington correspondent for Global News uh, and uh, has an update on what's going on here. Always a pleasure, Reggie. Thanks very much for joining us today. Good morning. The people are looking at, at, at President Biden right now and saying, look, we, we've talked about, and I think outlined uh, a lot of the things, and you've been doing this in your reporting about the, a lot of the impacts of, uh, of the disrupted supply chain. Does the president have a plan? Is he talking to other countries about uh, a way going forward here, Reggie? Yeah, he is. There's, there's kind of a domestic plan here, and then there is an eye on the broader kind of global community when it comes to corporations and businesses and how to kind of work together both in the public and private sector. Uh, on the domestic front here, uh, you're kind of right in that Republicans are trying to pin this on the president's shoulders to say, look, inflation is big and bad right now. This is going to be problematic heading into the holiday season. Blame this on the president. And the president is saying, look, whoa, hold your horses. Uh, we have to remember that we're in the middle of a pandemic and the global supply chain has been impacted by the global workforce in the reaction to how it was uh, uh, kind of impacted by the pandemic. So it's kind of a whole bunch of spears here. Uh, the president has announced uh, over the last couple of days, uh, well overseas and via executive order, that he's going to try to kickstart the economy by doing things like bringing the ports on both sides of the country up to 24 hour a day status, seven day a week. That kind of you know goes in to have conversations with the unions and the workforce uh, and also trying to deal with some more domestic issues by getting um, uh, manufacturing done better across uh, uh, the American side of things to do less reliance on the foreign markets. At the end of the day, though, these are all kind of talking points right now, and it's going to be really difficult for him to kind of rein things in, uh, you know, especially when he's on a, on, on a stage somewhere else in the world, not in America, and then vulnerable to the, to the kind of criticism from Republicans. But as you've been reporting, this is this is such a multifaceted problem. As you say, the ports are one thing, and, and the airports, for that matter, too. Uh, cargo containers, there's a shortage of them. But even if they get to that point, Reggie, and, and they get to the shores and to these ports, uh, there's not enough trucks to make the deliveries right now. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot that has to be addressed here. Yeah, absolutely. And and when you're talking about the ports uh, as well, you got to remember when these cargo ships come in, it's not just like there's a couple or even just a couple of hundred of, of cargo containers that need to be dealt with and go through customs and then kind of find their way onto the trucks. There are thousands upon thousands of these cargo containers on each and every ship. 
uh, and the red tape, the bureaucracy that can get in the way of getting these things off of the ship can leave these ships to sitting there for days upon days, if not weeks, before everything's cleared out. So this is where the White House is also stepping in to try and remove some of that kind of governmental bureaucracy that gets in the way of at least the customs forms uh, to try and get these ships cleared off quicker. And the president also said that he would potentially start having the government levy fines across ships that can't unload at a faster rate to get it onto the trucks. Truck drivers, obviously, there is a shortage of them, but having these kind of ships sit there also adds to the delay. So they're trying to kind of come at this from all different sides, understanding that there is a problem and understanding that even though it's not the president's problem, it's being perceived that way. Another element to this, too, that I find intriguing, I, I, you mentioned that there are also some, some production problems here because of, uh, well, the, the pandemic, certainly, you know, some places said to, to gear down production because of what's going on with the pandemic. And now uh, there seems to be a shortage of, of raw materials. Uh, the Defense Department is getting involved in this. So for those who may not know, the National Defense Stockpile, I guess, they they accumulate uh, raw materials for, for the, the different projects that they do, uh, but they're for the U.S. government. Is the president considering now releasing some of those to private industry to try to get the economy going? Yeah, absolutely. It was an executive order that was announced uh, uh, over the weekend. The text of it was just kind of uh, released uh, on Sunday uh, when the president was talking about this kind of at a summit on supply chain resilience. Uh, and you're right, kind of like how the Defense Department was used at the very beginning of the pandemic to procure things uh, uh, like ventilators uh, to give out to hospitals around the country. Uh, the Defense Department also stockpiles uh, mi- uh, minerals rather, uh, and materials, and they're going to start using those uh, to be able to supply out to the uh, kind of domestic production lines across the United States to try and kickstart some of that production again. Because look, manpower is down. Uh, we know that that raw materials are, are problematic because it's hard to import them if the exports are slowing because the pandemic is impacting another country. Uh, we also know that you know things like computer chips, which has obviously become kind of a worldwide problem, and it's an old story, but it is still kind of uh, continuing that push that so much reliance on one other country can really have a much broader impact, especially in a place like the United States, where things may be, you know, uh, uh, kind of written down and organized in California, but manufactured overseas, missing out on a couple of parts really becomes problematic. So if the Defense Department is able to procure the materials and then give them out uh, kind of on the the sporadic and the kind of um, uh, quoted way, it could help at least alleviate some of the problems in the United States and ultimately impact uh, places like Canada and Mexico who are reliant. So again, the government's doing what it can, but this is all stuff that is going to kind of be like, you know, the snowflake that eventually turns into a snowball. It's not going to be something that fixes things overnight. Well, I want to get an update on something you've been talking about for months now, as well, in fact, probably longer than the Biden presidency, uh, and that's his recovery bill. Because uh, and, and, and it, it's going to have an impact on, on global economy and certainly on the Canadian economy as well. Uh, it stalled in the House of Representatives. It did pass the Senate, as you've been reporting. Uh, I'm hearing that there may actually be a vote on this uh, in the next couple of days, uh, which would be great news for for the Biden administration. Uh, as a matter of fact, but as you've been reporting, what I find fascinating about this is a lot of the pushback they're getting on, on this are from Democrats. So I guess they're concerned about uh, the midterm elections, which are coming up. Yeah, look, the president himself uh, uh, at his uh, at his kind of European stopover over the last couple of days has really been kind of talking about the domestic policy, understanding that there is uh, kind of a collective eye from the United States watching him. Uh, and you're right, this infrastructure plan, this social spending plan, uh, it, it's far whittled down from where it once was, you know, up and above $3.5 trillion, some of it now down below 
1.7 trillion dollars and some key components to it were cut out like paid uh, family leave and and maternity leave uh which was obviously something that the president had run on which is why it's running into kind of such a, a stumble when it comes to members of the president's own party especially the more progressive side that's really been calling for these more social programs to be involved and included uh both in the infrastructure plan and in the social spending plan uh there could potentially be a vote on this but there are still members of the democratic party in the house that are pushing back on it, uh, saying, look, we said that we wanted everything to be all together. It's it's kind of in shambles from where it once was. The president says, look, compromise can only is the only way that things can get forward. Uh, and he understood he was never going to get the win for whatever it was that he wanted. And he's kind of trying to lay it out to the progressive side, being like, look, you have to be able to work back and forth. You can't just shake things up and change things because that's the way you want it. Worth pointing out that within that infrastructure bill, there are conversations, especially from the transportation uh, uh, secretary over the weekend, that if this is allowed to move forward, it could also help alleviate some uh, of the uh, the manufacturing crisis in the United States by potentially getting more people back to work. So there's a multifaceted approach to this. If he can get it signed, it's a big win. It's delayed. It'll be criticized, but it could help. Uh, that, we're talking about the impact that may have on the midterms in 2022. I guess of more immediate concern, though, Reggie, is tomorrow is election day in many states, and gubernatorial elections especially. Uh, and this matters in a, in a big way because many of the states, and well, Pennsylvania comes to mind as one of them, uh, these were key states in Biden's victory and very controversial states when it came to voting and what votes should count and what shouldn't. So whoever's in the in, in the government mansion in those particular states is going to have an impact on the next uh, federal election. So this this is a big deal, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely it is. And look, the delays that the president has found when it comes to his party being able to move his agenda forward has really found its way now into the state elections. Virginia is one that everybody is watching right now. This has, over the last couple of years, the last couple of decades really, really moved from a red to a purple to a strong blue state. Uh, the governor uh, race there between a kind of uh, Trump-allied Republican Glenn Youngkin uh, and a former Virginia uh, governor, uh, Terry McAuliffe, uh, McAuliffe is now watching his popularity start to erode, and that is because we are seeing that President Biden's popularity is starting to erode. The latest polling shows that 70 percent of the country thinks that it's moving in the wrong direction. Biden's popularity down seven points over the last couple of months. Is it resonating across Virginia? It's possible. Will Democrats keep a stronghold? It is possible, but it, it, it's going to be interesting to see how much support uh, uh, Republicans, if they don't win, have been able to kind of peel away from the Democrats. This was a state that Donald Trump lost mightily. If they're able to gain back any of that win, it, it potentially signals in 2022, look, if they can make gains in Virginia, they can make gains in Pennsylvania. They can regain things uh, in, in maybe uh, in Georgia or in Florida. Uh, so this could become that kind of turning point. The sitting party always does worse in uh, in a midterm election, this is going to be really bellwether to see how Virginia uh, uh, moves forward with this. And as you've been reminding us with your reporting, uh, why does this matter? Because in, in the United States, it's the states that determine uh, the electoral rules, even for federal elections. It's uh, Pennsylvania has their own rules. Georgia has their own rules, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so who controls those state legislatures is, is going to have a major impact on the next presidential election. I know that's a little ways down the road, but you got to figure they're thinking about it, Reggie. 
Yeah, I mean, look, this country is always in, uh, really, realistically, a presidential election. As soon as the election yeah. ends, you're talking about midterms. And then as soon as those midterms end, you are talking about two years later who is going to be the president uh, of the country. And given the fact that you're right, these Republican strongholds across these states, they make the rules for the elections. Uh, they are being criticized for making it harder for people of color to vote, for uh, majority Democratic populations to vote uh, with redistricting. So there is a concern here uh, that if Republicans are able to kind of get back the support that they lost under Donald Trump by keeping kind of Trumpism but stepping away from the man himself, they may be able to put themselves back into a position if they can uh, garner enough support by winning back things like the suburbs that walked away uh, from Donald Trump. So there's a lot of implications here going forward. It's also worth pointing out, too, there are a majority of Republican legislatures across the United States, and should we ever get into a contested election again, it goes back to the House of Representatives, where state delegations are the ones who would ultimately make a play here and could have the final say. If you have a majority Republicans, that is always going to benefit that party. Big deal tomorrow. We'll be watching and listening for your reporting on this over the next couple of days. Reggie, thanks so much on a busy day. Appreciate you jumping in with us today. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. And, of course, you can watch uh, Reggie's reports on uh, Global National uh, weeknights uh, starting at 630 with Donna Friesen. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's uh, shift over to vaccines right now, specifically children's vaccines. Now, as we reported last week on the program, uh, Pfizer has asked for and seems to be uh, moving very quickly towards getting permission uh, from Health Canada and, of course, the FDA down in the States uh, for the childhood vaccines. They are doing testing, by the way, contrary to some of the things I saw on social media, that this is untested. How could you do this to kids? They're testing it. Uh, that's not be silly about this. But should they be mandatory? And there's a lot of very, very heavy-duty discussion going on about this among uh, medical experts in the community. And uh, the provincial governments are being uh, pressured into making a decision one way or another about that. Here in the province of Ontario, uh, there are some who are advocating right now that uh, the COVID-19 vaccine uh, for children, those children under 12, uh, be part of the mandatory immunizations for students uh, before they can attend school. I'm not so sure that's going to happen. Uh, to address all of these uh, and to try to add some clarity to this, uh, please to welcome Dr. Don Bodash to the problem. Uh, Dr. Bodash is a tenured professor of pathology and molecular medicine at McMaster University, uh, also the Canada Research Chair in Aging and Immunity with the DeGroote Institute for Infectious Disease Research. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm sorry you had to read all those affiliations. For time. <laughs> well, we're out of time now, but no, no, it's seriously, because uh, this is a big deal right now. And, and you know, the good news is that we're having the discussion because the vaccine has moved so quickly and, and Pfizer and, and others are, are doing what they can to try to get this to market quickly. Is there a concern at this stage, doctor, first of all, before we get into the mandatory aspect of this, is there a concern about the uptake on this at all? Because there's, you know, let's face it, we, the, the vaccines themselves have gone through an awful lot because of, of the pushback from some people and anti-vaxxers and, and seemingly campaigns on social media to say, don't do this. And, you know, the concerns, Are, is that going to something that's going to uh, also impact the, the children's vaccine when we come to who's going to get it and who's not? Absolutely. So we already know from surveys of parents that even people who are really gung-ho to get the vaccine themselves are a little bit more cautious when it comes to their kids. And a lot of the messaging has been really confusing because in the first few waves of the pandemic, the original strain of the virus and uh, the even the alpha variant, which sort of came next, they really didn't lead to a lot of hospitalizations and deaths with kids. And so people quite rightly said, okay, you know, even if my kid gets it, they're probably going to be okay. 
Now, with Delta, things have gotten a little bit more difficult. We have seen more hospitalizations. We have seen a few deaths. And people want so desperately for that to be not their kid. You know, so people try to mm-hmm. attribute that to them having comorbidities or lots of serious health conditions. Um, and that is, for the most part, true. However, there have been cases where kids who, you know, have very minor comorbidities, you know, maybe are a bit overweight or whatever, end up in the hospital. And yes, their chance of death is a lot lower, but that's still, I certainly would never want my kid to have to go to a hospital or, you know, to miss a semester of school or to, to you know, have uh, health challenges in the recovery that kept them out of sports or whatever. So overall, the messaging for the Delta variant, which is pretty much the only thing we have in Canada right now, is that the risk of vaccinations are much, much lower uh, than any risks associated with actually getting the infection. Well, let's use a comparator here because we talked about the mandatory vaccinations for kids Mm -hmm. and anybody who's got kids in elementary school understands that, that they have to show proof of vaccination against things Mm -hmm. like rubella and some other things. And uh, it's it's pretty much an accepted practice now. I know some people still aren't comfortable with it, but be that as it may, uh, it's, it's the law here in the province of Ontario anyway. What's the difference between those vaccines and this vaccine when it comes to any potential risk and any potential side effects? I think the only uh, sort of the major differences are the newness of it. So, for example, there are some side effects associated with this vaccine that we haven't historically seen before. So, as an example, the myocarditis that can happen in teens. However, it's transient. It usually goes away. And the heart damage that can come from a COVID infection tends to be permanent. So there's a little bit about that. But in truth, the risks are not that different uh, overall than our normal childhood vaccines. Kids in general will have more fevers and feel more unwell because they've got these wonderful hyperactive immune systems that are doing their jobs. So, you know, if you have a kid who always was, you know, sick the day after they got their, their five-year shots, you're probably, your kid's very likely to be feel a little unwell after this one. So in general, the risks to any serious health conditions are not that different than, than any of the other vaccines they have in the series. Um, but the difference is the newness. You know, parents really want to test it out on other people before they have it in their own kids. So I would say that across the world, we've had, you know, almost a billion of these doses administered, including teenagers, um, the 12 and up crowd. And we're not seeing signatures that are that mean that the, the risks outweigh the benefits. Um, so I think this is going to be really important to help end this pandemic. Um, but politically, it's, it's challenging because uh, so many parents are so concerned about having their kids vaccinated. And we we talked about, you know, the, the debate going on about whether or not it should be mandatory in schools. Mm-hmm. The premier's already said here in Ontario that he's not going to do that, uh, which is not surprising because he doesn't make vaccines mandatory for just about anybody else either. <laughs> uh, they seem to want to shy away from that, what he thinks is a political hot potato, but be that as it may, the vaccination rates are the vaccination rates. And, and mm-hmm. to your point about the side effects, doctor, well, let's get some clarity on that. Uh, and I'm not trying to diminish the the impact in that. I mean, you know, if it were my child, I'd be concerned about myocardial problems too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my understanding is if that should happen, and if it does, apparently it's a very, very rare circumstance, mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes it's treatable. Mm-hmm. I know there's a, a, a picture for the Boston Red Sox that did develop that after he got the vaccine uh, in 2019. Uh, and he was diagnosed. Now, he ended up missing the last three months of the baseball season, but he's mm-hmm. back, he's healthy, he's playing, he's fine, because he, he took the medications and was treated for this. Uh, and, and you mentioned also about particular allergic reaction to this, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's there. Those are risks, but 
uh, as, as you've told us in previous discussions, I mean, there are risks with most vaccines, there are risks with mm-hmm. surgeries, that nothing is, is guaranteed 100% in this world, I suppose. No, and you know, one of the things I encourage people to do is read the back of their children's Advil bottle or their any of the medications they might give their kids and get a sense of what those risks are too, because you'll find that actually when you compare them to all the things we normally uh, give to kids, you know, med- maybe medications for um, ADHD or, you know, medications if they're uh, diabetic or medications for all the things that we would give people, the risks are not actually that dissimilar. And so when we're making these decisions for our kids, one of the things that sort of clouds our judgment is that we seem to think that doing nothing is safer than doing something. And so we'd rather not do, not give our kid a vaccine than to give them a vaccine because that feels safer. But in reality, when we actually look at the risks um, for becoming ill enough with COVID to affect your life, you know, I don't want to be a scaremonger. It's not like kids have a incredibly high risk of death, but, you know, an infection that takes them out of school for a few weeks when they've already missed so much school uh, in the past year is problematic or, you know, the, the heart inflammation is treatable, but the, the damage that comes from COVID is often not. So these are the sorts of things we have to keep in mind. And, and you know, all everything we do involves risk. But the benefit, I think, uh, far outweighs any risk for getting kids vaccinated. Well, which is why we're glad you had time to talk to us about this, too, mm-hmm. and add some clarity to this. It's always a pleasure, Doctor. Thanks so much for this today. I really appreciate Thanks you joining us. Thanks for having us. me. Thanks for having Dr. Me. Don Bodish, of course, uh, from uh, McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been talking about uh, highway projects, and, and it seems to me, although, you know, the campaign for the uh, provincial government is not necessarily underway officially. I mean, we know there's going to be an election next June, uh, but the Ford government's pretty much laid out their plan, and it seems to uh, include two major highway projects. One is the proposed Highway 14, or 413, rather, and we talked about that extensively. Uh, many of the local governments that are going to be impacted have already said, please don't do this, but the government seems to move forward on this anyway, or want to. Anyway. The other is called the Brantford Bypass, uh, and it's a, a very, very sensitive area that's uh, that's impacted by this. And we haven't had a whole lot of conversation about this, but we need to. Uh, and because of the impact that it's going to have on the environment and the, the fact that it seems as if we're not really getting the full story from the provincial government about exactly what they're planning and how this is going to roll out. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Emma McIntosh. Emma is an environmental reporter for the Narwhal. She's done a lot of research on this project and uh, published an article in the National Observer uh, that basically talks about uh, what's going to be happening and what we should know about this Bradford Bypass project. Uh, Emma, Nick McIntosh joins us here on the program uh, to give us the lowdown on what's going on. Emma, first of all, thank you so much for the time. Uh, We've heard about this. We've talked about this. uh, There's a a lot of concern about what's going on here, about the Bradford Bypass and the impact that it's going to have. How did you you latch onto this project and, 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 and start to dig in here? Because the information has been very, very sparse from the government itself. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, So this story was done as a collaboration between the Toronto Star and National Observer. And our two outlets worked on a previous investigation about the 413, which we talked about in the Mm -hmm. spring. And after we did that 413 story, a lot of people reached out and said, hey, you should really take a closer look at this other highway project. It's a bit further out of Toronto. a bit more out of the GTA's eye um, and out of the public eye. And 
the deeper we looked, the more we found there was to discover. Well, and let's let's talk about some of the things that you discovered, because like I say, the government uh, hasn't talked a whole lot about this, uh, but we talked about the environmental impacts on this. And, and just as we talked about Highway 413, uh, the environmental impacts on, as you mentioned in the article here, are significant. Uh, this four lanes are going to cut through 27 waterways, 11 hectares of sensitive wetlands, and the Holland Marsh. Uh, and, and anybody who's driven north of, in, of the 400 knows just past Highway 9, one of the most fertile, actually one of the most beautiful uh, agricultural areas, I think, in this country, if not in the world, is the Holland Marsh. What is the impact of this proposed highway, and, and what's it going to look like, and what's it going to do to the Holland Marsh? That's a great question. One of the big things about the Bradford Bypass is that we don't really have any certainty on how this would affect the environment. We know that road pollution, um, that road salt in particular, would be expected to leach into some waterways and uh, contaminate the marsh, and that's not a good thing. Uh, We also know that endangered species would be affected. We also know that, in general, um, highways tend to bring more traffic than they reduce, and that is more emissions, which is not a good thing for the climate. But the wrinkle here and the reason why we don't know much more specifically is because the government has not done an environmental assessment of this project since 1997. Um, That was the year after my birth. So I had to research what was happening that year to be able to explain it. Um, But that was the year that the Spice Girls put out Spice World. You know, it it was a different era. We weren't really talking about climate change back then. The Greenbelt didn't even exist. And the Holland Marsh is, is part of the Greenbelt, by the way. And so a lot has changed, um, and we thought it w- was worth looking into what else might be going on. Well, that's an important point, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because it was in the article, and it's one of these things I underlined. Uh, that 1997, that's what they're basing this project on, is that environmental assessment. Uh, but a lot of the things that we know about the environment and the environmental impacts <coughs> excuse me, weren't even part of that. Uh, so it, the, the, the report itself, the environmental assessment that was done back then, really is 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 not relevant to what's happening here because it does not address uh, things like impact. And, and I know when I talked to somebody from the ministry about this project uh, a couple of weeks ago, Emma, uh, they, they assured me, oh, no, 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 it's not going to cut through the Holland Marsh. Well, it, it is. Uh, it's going to cut through the northern part of it, but it's going to have an impact on the water system and the ecosystem there, which is going to have an impact on the marsh, isn't it? That's correct. Yeah. And I think a point of that that's a weird point of confusion, I think, that, that locals have as well. Um, and, and it gets into some weird distinctions around what counts as the Holland Marsh. But the Greenbelt area that is defined as the Holland Marsh, yes, it will definitely cut through that, which uh, could have a negative impact on the environment. Now, the province says that they're completing a fresh round of studies to look at this and, and make sure everything can be done in a way that minimizes harm. Um But the government also exempted the project from having to undergo a fresh, complete assessment. Um, And and so we're losing out on a level of detail there that I think critics say they would want to see to know it's safe. And and what we're talking about here, of course, as you mentioned, is is the environmental impact that this is going to have on the Holland River, not just the marsh itself. Uh, And and for them to actually draw a line and say, well, they're not the same. Yeah, they are. I mean, there wouldn't be a Holland Marsh if it weren't for the Holland River. I mean, uh, there has to be, as you say, an underwater system for this. And if that's polluted, uh, by by extension, the Holland Marsh is going to be impacted negatively by this as well. Uh, And and this is a place, as as we know, through the the growing season, uh, where an awful lot of the fresh fruit and vegetables that we get, of course, are grown right in that particular area. 
so there's there's an impact on food chain here too. I mean, that this is pretty extensive, and for them to simply say, well, this project is is going to be exempted from any environmental assessment that's going to be happening here, uh, is is troubling to me, and it should be to everybody, I would think. I think that's yeah, that that's part of what prompted us to, to take a closer look at at why this might be happening and how the decisions are being made. You also talk about, I guess it's an old phrase in journalism, and I guess about every other investigative avenue these days. Follow the money, and uh, you know you went okay. We already know about the environmental impacts, as you perceived, and as you've talked about in the article here, and you've substantiated this with uh, a number of experts who have weighed in on this. Although you know they're basing it on what little information they have. Uh, we also know that, uh, notwithstanding what the Ford government is saying, that this is going to alleviate uh, gridlock on, on the southern Ontario highways. Uh, we also know, as you mentioned in the piece, uh, building roads does not alleviate gridlock. It usually just brings more vehicles onto the roads. Uh, we saw that with the 407 a number of years ago. Uh, you know, the, the QE is, is just as gridlocked as it ever has been. And the 407 is now starting to get gridlocked because of the amount of traffic that's going on there through rush hour times. So that argument is going to get tossed out the window, yet it's still one of the things that they, they seem to embrace in situations like this. But we are not talking about the impact that it's having on community. Talk to us a little bit about that, because it's a little different than the Highway 413 proposal, uh, where most of the uh, the communities that are impacted by that one, Emma, uh, have, have asked the government to petition the government in some cases, don't do this. Uh, there's a lot of support for this, uh, this grant for bypass project, uh, in principle anyway. Yeah, you're right about that. Um, so the highway would go through York Region and Simcoe County, and the main two municipalities there that it would go through are Bradford, West Glenbury, and East Glenbury. And those municipalities are very firmly in favor, and they have been for a long time, because this is a very old idea. Uh, it also predates my existence. And more recently, there have been a bit of reluctance from other municipalities in the area. So Barrie, Innisfil, Georgina, um, places a bit further north have started to say, hey, we're not so sure about this. Maybe this isn't a good idea. But the fact remains that the, the municipalities along the route are very in favor. And I think that, you know, have you ever driven back from um, a weekend up north on the 400 and tried to get to the 404 to avoid traffic? It's it's awful. <laughs> like, it's really, really difficult to get between those two highways, which is what the the bypass is, is meant to alleviate. Yeah, um, basically, I, I, you're absolutely right. And usually what I did is I ducked onto Highway 9, and uh, it's... <laughs> It's it's a long arduous trip to get over to the four hundred down there from that. So I understand the angst there, uh, mm -hmm. and and I understand why people are saying, "Look, I can't hack that." By the way, it's always under construction too. You might, uh, which makes it even more frustrating. Uh, but is it really going to solve that problem? I know that uh, some of the community leaders have said, "Well, it's going to get these great goods that we produce in the Hollow Marsh to market sooner," uh, and and there may be an argument for that. I'm not so sure that that's valid or not. Uh, but is it worth it because of of the you know, well, here's the thing. I, I'll cut right to the quick because I got this from the minister the other day. And now, you know, you put this in the article, too. They're saying, well, it's going to save 25 or 30 minutes. Is it really? Is there any science behind that? The ministry would say that they're they're doing a lot of science and a lot of study to come up with that number. Um, I think that, like, the, the whole concept that highways don't reduce congestion is, is, um, is one that they say that they're factoring in. Um, but Really, only time will tell us for sure. the The big problem is um, is that there are other ways other than a highway to reduce congestion. 
uh, our investigation, as, as part of that, we obtained internal documents that showed that back in 2014, um, the government of the day actually studied a whole bunch of other options. Um, this is information that the Ford government has access to. Um, and this shows that there are a ton of ways that would be comparably effective in terms of making it easier to get around. Um, stuff like improving interchanges, widening Highway 400, those kinds of things um, would have a lesser impact on the environment and at least as far as this study in 2014 said, have a very similar impact on traffic in the region. But to go back to my point from a couple of minutes ago about follow the money, as you've discovered, uh, an awful lot of uh, developers, some speculators, have purchased large tracts of land along this proposed route. Uh, a lot of them have given political contributions. And as you correctly stated, uh, sometimes it's it's to all political parties, to the Liberals and to the Conservatives, and even some to the NDP. But the overwhelming majority of those contributions go to the Conservative Party, to the Progressive Conservative Party in Ontario. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, some of the uh, people in the higher echelons of some of these companies have pretty strong ties to this government, don't they? That's true. We tracked, um, we first looked at, I guess, who owns land around the Bradford Bypass. Because one fundamental principle here is that access to a new highway or other transportation tends to drive up land value. Um, if anyone listening to this has tried to buy a house recently in the greater Toronto area, you would know that it is very, very expensive. And, um, and land prices are also very expensive. And something like a highway could make that value skyrocket even more. And so we found that developers own over 3,100 acres near the proposed route of the bypass. We then looked at their donations, um, who they were donating to and when. Since 2014, we found that over $850,000 from these developers, their companies and senior staff and family members have gone to the progressive conservatives and roughly half of that to the, the liberals. Um, and that's not to say that donations or even lobbying, that they buy the outcome that people want, um, but it is a way to, to gain access to, to politicians who are friendly to your ideas, and that's something that's harder to pin down. And there's another, I guess, rather shady part to this, too, as you mentioned. It's right in the first part of the article, too. Uh, they have slightly changed the proposed route here. Uh, initially, uh, there's some concern about, as you mentioned, going through the Hollow Marsh, and, and one of them actually is going to go across part of a golf course that's there. Uh, as you've uh, so correctly stated, uh, they've changed that route ever so slightly. Now the route is going to go through a dense forest north of Toronto, uh, which is a residential area, by the way, and they're they're ignoring the golf course altogether. A golf course which coincidentally is co-owned uh, by the father of uh, of one of the, uh, the members of the Ford government. That's right. Um, in in looking at the plots of land around the highway, we stumbled upon this fact. Um, in April, the government proposed this new slight change. It's really just a little wobble on the map. Um, and they said that it was about avoiding an archaeological site and also um, lessening impact on the Holland River, which is uh, very close to this spot. And what they didn't mention was that this little dip in the route would avoid this golf course, which is owned, uh, co-owned by PC MPP Stan Cho's father. Now, that was April. In June, Sancho became the Associate Minister of Transportation. Um, the Ministry of Transportation has told us that Cho declared a conflict of interest on this. He's not involved with any decision-making on the Bradford Bypass. Um, and after our story came out, they clarified even further that 
neither Cho nor Caroline Mulrooney, who's the Minister of Transportation, um, attempted to influence this decision in any way, um, that it's a technical decision. And I think critics of the project don't exactly feel that that resolves their concern. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting situation. Well, as you mentioned, because this the new route, the, the, the little bump, as you call it, uh, is going to impact a residential area, and that usually involves expropriation. I know some people love living out there. That's why they moved out there in the first place, and now they may actually have their land taken away from them. Uh, one other element, because I know we're tight on time here, because you just talked about some of the uh, environmentally sensitive areas. Uh, it seems uh, from, from your uh, reporting here that the a number of Aboriginal groups have expressed some concern uh, about burial grounds and about other areas there. Uh, I, I'm getting the sense these these people are not at the table, and I know people in the Hamilton area can recall when we finally got around to building the Red Hill Valley Expressway some years ago through the east end of the city, there was constant consultation with Aboriginal groups to try to address their concerns. Uh, is that even happening with this project? The Ministry of Transportation says they are consulting with Indigenous nations who are concerned. Um, the main one would be Chippewas of Georgina Island First Nation, um, back in the 90s, they raised concerns about this project, which they said would pass through sensitive cultural sites and archaeological sites. Um, so they're not speaking publicly about the project right now. Um, and I'll, I'll certainly leave it to them to let folks know what their updated opinion is on this when they have it. Um, but yeah, that's a serious, important component of the story. So much to this, and, and, and again, congratulations on your reporting on this to, to bring these things to light. Uh, I, I read this in the Toronto Star. Of course, you, you were working with Sheila Wang on that uh, from the Star. Uh, you can see the National Observer. Of course, you can read uh, Emma's work in, in Narwhal as well. Uh, keep on with this. Uh, there's more to come on this, and as I say, as we head closer and closer to the provincial election, and this seems to be one of the uh, the, 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 the foundations, I guess, of their re-election campaign as their policy por comes forward on this. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot both pro and con in this in the, in the not-too-distant future. Emma, thank you for spending some time with us today, and uh, continued good luck with your work here. Thanks so much for having me. Emma McIntosh, environmental reporter for the Narwhal. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, uh, we're turning the page now from, uh, well, slowly but surely into wintertime. Uh, the leaves are turning, and uh, there's great anticipation about what's going to be happening uh, with the ski industry. Now, we know that tourism has, has been hit hard by COVID, and the recovery has been very, very painful uh, for many. And there's, uh, there's a, a concern right now within the ski industry about that uh, for reasons we're going to outline in just a couple of minutes. Uh, and, uh, and the impact, by the way, that this could have on local economies. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Paul Pinchbeck, who is the president of the Canadian Ski Council. Paul, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. A couple of different things. I want to talk about the impact this is going to have on local communities, but I also want to talk about uh, a problem that we've discussed on the program here before, and that, of course, is now that the borders are starting to reopen and travel restrictions have been eased in many places, including here in Canada, uh, visas need to be, uh, of course, obtained for people to come into this country, especially for working, uh, and that's going to have an impact. And, and this came to mind a, a, a number of years ago, I guess. Uh, my son went out to Whistler, B.C. and worked out there for a winter and, and at the ski resort and had a wonderful time. Uh, and two of the people that he befriended became good friends. One was from Dublin, and the other was from uh, Germany, I believe. And it, it just reminded me of the fact that the industry in many places relies on foreign workers uh, to fill a lot of these jobs. And, and those workers, of course, depend on the ski industry here for that. 
Uh, and there's a, there's a problem here with visas, and and I guess this could manifest itself in in not enough uh, staff for many of these facilities, Paul. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, resorts across the country are challenged to uh, to bring back individuals. Uh, you know, we've had a very uncertain time in the uh, in the tourism industry as a whole, and uh, many people are still shy about working in the industry. And of course, we we don't know exactly what the uh, the levels of business will be. I think when it comes to some of our larger destination resorts, including places like uh, Blue Mountain here in Ontario, uh, you know, we'll never compromise on the safe operations side of things. But shops, restaurants, some of the amenities that we've come to expect, uh, we're, we're definitely having trouble getting those individuals uh, hired and, uh, and ready to go for the season. Well, we saw that. I mean, we were just up there a couple of days ago and uh, talking to some of the local shop owners, and, and that's what we need to rely on. I mean, you talk about the industry itself and Blue Mountain, uh, but it's the it's the local people that run in the village and so many other places around there that really rely on on that that traffic, isn't people coming in there? And I, I know you don't <laughs> forget, and I certainly don't forget. It was three or four years ago, I guess, where. Uh, the concern usually is, are we going to have enough snow, and when can you open? And, and I know one year it was, I think we got into New Year, and we still had had much snow up in Blue. Uh, and I was talking to one of the operators, and they said we had to call people and say, "Don't come, uh, we just don't have work for you." Uh, this is the reverse of that now. Uh, we're hoping it's going to be a winter here in Ontario, and you know the weather experts are telling us we're going to get a lot of snow, which is great news for places like Blue. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, if people can't get into the country, people from Europe and other places that are wanting to come here to work for the season, what does that do to, to Blue and to other industries? It definitely makes the labor market very tight. I mean, the, uh, the description that the, the best de- uh, describes where we're at with uh, visas and permanent residence applications is that it's a tightly wound knot. Uh, we're really calling on the government, the federal government, that is, uh, as they as they as they get back to work after the election, to help us unwind this knot as fast as possible. We have people who are already here in Canada and have been here in Canada uh, on their uh, their IEC visas and their permanent residence uh, uh, programs uh, that are finding that they're now delayed by four or five months in getting their uh, their applications for renewal uh, approved and that's something that uh, that uh, we need to have happen very quickly to keep people uh, keep people employed there's one thing for people that's coming into the country but let, let me ask you about the circumstance you just described if they're already here and maybe worked last year uh, I mean they've already qualified they've already passed inspection on this uh, why is, is it red tape that's holding up the renewal of, a, of, of an application like that it appears to be uh, it appears to be red tape. It's, it's the resources being applied and the priority given to uh, individuals who may already be in the country or may already be at some point in the pr- approval process and just waiting for biometric scans and things like that. I mean, we would not want anybody to uh, to uh, drop Canada's successful uh, immigration criteria, but we would love to see some more resources put to it uh, as as this government gets back to work. Well, as one of the operators I was talking to up at Blue mentioned, he says that uh, describing this process, he says it's like you're going to the grocery store and there's only one cashier open and there's 35 people in line. Open another cashier. Uh, the, 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 it's incumbent upon the government right now to understand that they've got a problem, uh, and not just with the ski industry. I'm talking about people that want to come into this country to work uh, in in a number of different industries right now. 
and and it's the government has to I, I would think speed this process up i mean we're talking about how the uh, the economic recovery is lagging because we can't seem to get uh, staffing in many industries right now and that's uh, to a certain extent all on the fact that the government has to make it not easier but expect more expedient for people to debate applications have them processed and get here and get to work yes absolutely the uh, the challenge is that uh, you know the government programs are ending and tourism is uh, optimistic and ready to stand on its feet, whether it's uh, winter tourism or summer tourism. But right now, if we cannot conduct business in a timely fashion, it's going to be hard for our industry to, uh, well, to get back on its feet and uh, and keep going. Remember that tourism was just uh, identified as one of Canada's economic pillars. And uh, without labor, uh, we are a highly labor-intensive business. Without labor, we are not going to be uh, not going to be coming back uh, quickly at all. We talked with Tim Huda a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Tim, of course, uh, uh, was, uh, I guess, commissioned basically by the Ford government to go basically around. He's a former tourism minister, of course, during the Harris government. And and Tim went around the province and, and talked to various sectors, including the tourism industry uh, and the hospitality industry and, of course, the recreational industry and what the impact it was having. And they came up with a bunch of recommendations. How is this going to impact what, what we're doing in the ski industry and what you're doing, Paul? Uh, especially in light of what happened last year. And, you know, we can reference the Blue Mountain situation that I know a lot of people from our listening area spend some time up there uh, and we love it. It's fabulous. Uh, but it was it was a well, it was a tough year last year. I mean, you know, we had the restrictions. We had the lockdown. Uh, they opened for a little while just before Christmas and then shut down again. And, and a few more weeks after that until uh, the end of the ski season. How important is it? In, in, given those circumstances, to have a successful year this year for some of these operators? Oh, for our operators at at, uh, at large, absolutely critical to have a good year this year. And I think that's an important distinction that you make is the Blue Mountain is is a very successful tourism icon, but the, the heart of the Canadian ski industry, and indeed the heart of Ontario or Ontario's tourism industry, are small, what we would call, mom-and-pop operations. These are independent business operators who, in many cases, have had to uh, go deep into personal savings, deep into mortgaging their homes to ensure that their businesses will survive. And, you know, that's uh, that's critical moving forward. They're not large corporations. So we need to be able to get every business unit firing on all cylinders to generate the kind of revenue just to claw back to even uh, with what we may have had uh, last year in that shortened season. And that's something I think gets lost in the discussion sometimes, isn't it? I mean, you know, Blue Mountain Resort itself, I mean, that's a large international corporation that's involved in many of these things. And I'm not suggesting that they don't get hurt by the pandemic. They certainly did. Uh, but they can absorb some of this stuff. The small businesses, not so much. And, and you know, they're they're hurting. I mean, they could be, as you say, it could be a restaurant. It could be any number of other things that rely on that traffic. And if that traffic and that tourism isn't there, uh, you know, uh, well, we know that there are some businesses that just haven't opened up again because they just said, look, that's enough. And we've seen that happen in, in well, for instance, you talk about Blue Mountain in nearby Collingwood. There's uh, a lot of boarded up businesses in downtown on that beautiful main street down there that just uh, could not open up again. Maybe will be able to, but it's going to depend a great deal, I would think, on who's going to come up this, this ski season and, and spend some time and spend some money up there. Yeah, this is not just a uh, Collingwood uh, phenomenon, as you well know. The, yeah. I've been on the phone in the last couple of weeks as we've been working on uh, the, what the restrictions will be 
uh, for operating this year. And and there are there are uh, businesses. I'm not at liberty to name names, but there are business owners uh, in the ski business who haven't, as family-run businesses, have not taken a family paycheck in 19 months. There are businesses that have mortgaged their houses and and anything they could get their hands on to keep going and and they're ready to go we're used to the seasonality of our business the 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 question about snowfall uh we've made significant capital investments uh over the years in in trying to to improve that snowfall or the man-made snow infrastructure but boy oh boy um not having enough labor to run your business that's that's really going to be tough this year and, and that's one of the arguments I made, and you know that was well documented. I was very vocal about the government locking down that industry uh, because I, you were one of the first, and I think one of the, the most efficient industries at, at practicing social distancing, masking, etc., like that on on, on the, the ski lifts and everything else. Uh, but it is what it is. I mean, those were the restrictions. Are you concerned mm-hmm. that that's going to be a contributing factor as well? I know they have eased a lot of those restrictions, but uh, the protocol that you put in place last year for ski resorts is that going to remain in place for this ski season too? There are still some details to be ironed out. I think what we'll see is that indoors, uh, our businesses will look very similar to last year in terms of uh, the masking requirements, things like that. Um, what we do have is is a set of operating rules for those indoor environments that look a lot like our restaurants are currently across the province. And so okay. the Vax Pass and all of that are very, very important. Outdoors, we're being told we'll have a little more freedom uh, while still maintaining social, uh, excuse me, physical distancing and other measures to make sure that people are uh, are safe and cared for. I think it's important to, to note that you know, we we as an industry have not been able to find a documented case of skier to skier or skier to staff or the reverse staff to skier transmission of COVID-19. Our protocols work. And one of our concerns, of course, is that because we were shut down, uh, people might be reticent to get going again, particularly in that casual skier or snowboarder market, the family market that comes once or twice or three times a year. Uh, you know, the, we, we definitely want to make sure that people understand that uh, that we it's not our protocols that shut us down. It was other other factors outside of our control. Well, and you know the interest is there. I mean, judging by some of the lineups at, uh, at some of the, uh, the establishments in the village over the last couple of weeks when we were up there, uh, th- they want to be there. But I guess the concern here is, as, as you say, for the casual folks who may only go up, may go up there once or twice a year, uh, you want them to enjoy a level of service, whether they're staying in one of the hotels or the condos or whatever the case might be, or going to one of the pubs or one of the restaurants. Uh, you know, you'd, so, you'd hate to have to go to them and say, look, I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait a little longer because we only have half the staff here uh, because we couldn't find people to fill the other jobs. Yeah, that, that's a circumstance, given what we've gone through over the last 19 months, you really don't want to have to face. No, I think we've seen it in the summer when we might have all gone out for a, for a, a patio lunch or something like that, that, that the servers are under... Uh, under greater strain, there's few, fewer people in that industry and things are taking longer. I'm hopeful that we can strike an equilibrium uh, for this year with the consumer where everyone understands it will take a little bit longer, but that we all, uh, we're all getting to back to, uh, back to normal. And, uh, it's still, the problem is, is that people, the winter is short. We have a 12 week winter season, approximately 100 days of operation. And every day that's missed in a restaurant that might be owned by a small, uh, a small operator is a day they can't get back in the winter. And it's absolutely critical that, that they're able to maximize the business when they can. 
Paul, do you see a light at the end of the tunnel here? And and by that, I mean, <laughs> through the expedience of, I mean, you, you need a solution now. I mean, you need a solution yesterday. The season is upon us. I, we got the notice that, you know, they had a little bit of snow on the hill last week, but it didn't stay. But uh, it's getting colder, and you know it's going to come upon you before you know it. It's a bit tough to say that there's definitely light at, at the end of the tunnel. I do know that our ski areas here in Ontario and across Canada are not only just waiting for the government to, to process those uh, IEC applications and things like that, but they're investing in new ways of recruiting people. They're trying to change what they may have done. It's not just a, uh, a monetary situation. They're increasing wages, absolutely. So going up by two bucks here, two bucks there, more than that in other positions. Uh, but also looking at more innovative programs to provide an experience, a reason for people to come back into the tourism uh, the tourism world in general and specifically uh, in this in skiing in general. I mean, we do recruit from smaller, more rural communities, uh, but uh, I think that once we uh, once we get through this, uh, we'll, we'll we'll get back to where we need to be. Just a matter of time. Yeah, and we, we talked about, uh, in, especially in some of the larger resorts, I mean, there is a large percentage of the working force there that, that are uh, from other countries that come here. But there's, as you mentioned, a lot of locals too and a lot of people from, well, the Hamilton, London, St. Catharines, Toronto area uh, that will pop up there and work seasonally as well, and, and they find accommodation. I know that's one of the arrangements. They they stay at one of the villages or someplace like this, and they, they basically live there and work their shifts. Uh, but there's got to be work for them. I mean, that's what it really comes down to right now. Do you notice that there is a bit of a reticence where people say, I know I've done that the last couple of years, but I don't know if the industry is going to be that stable now. Maybe I'll go look for something else. I think that's that's part of the challenge that we had is that, that during the hardest hit year, uh, era of, uh, of tourism, and we're still in that hardest hit, uh, space, uh, people quite rightly needed to have stability in their lives. And I think that's been the defining factor of the last 21 months of COVID-19 is we needed stability. We needed to understand that we had a paycheck and people have migrated to other jobs, other roles. I think as we get to grips with, uh, with the short-term shortage of workers through uh, processing of temporary foreign workers and, and uh, holiday visas, that's a great stopgap. But then I think the real uh, emphasis that ski areas are placing and tourism businesses are placing on the overall employee experience and making it uh, making it uh, uh, very much a uh, a work I guess I would say a, a working uh, uh, lifestyle uh, and something where there's a there's a year-round opportunity that will pay dividends and people will come back to our industry. Well, if we talk about the Ontario economy rebounding, this is going to be a big part of it, especially heading into the winter season. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. and we're hoping that uh, the government steps up here and that uh, that folks get that confidence once again in the industry. Uh, Paul, we'll stay in touch. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, continued good luck with this. And uh, who is hoping for a great season uh, for all the operators right across uh, Ontario and right across the country, for that matter, uh, for what has become a very big part of local economies. Uh, thanks for explaining this and spending some time with us today. Oh, thank you very much, Bill, and uh, we hope to see some white stuff on the ground in the next couple of weeks. So Keep, let's go keep me posted. Keep me posted. Cheers. Okay, Paul Pinbeck, who is the uh, president of the Canadian Ski Council, of course, up in the Blue Mountain area, but it, it covers just all the resorts up around Barrie, Moonstone, and so many other places, Hockley Valley. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.